this is, uh, this is week three of us uh, revisiting and reintroducing our vision to be a church without walls, which we have said means at least four things. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn around to the person beside you, and I want you to share just one of the four things that a church without walls means. Now, if you're visiting, you haven't a clue, or you haven't a clue, even though you've been here, just, just chat together for a second, all right? But share one of the four things that a church without walls means. Go. Okay, that's enough, that's enough, 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 enough. Okay. Let me, let me give you four words to remind you of the four things. They all begin with B. This only hit me during the week. I don't normally come up with things that begin with the same letter. But buildings, barriers, borders, balance. So buildings, it's not about them. It's about people, it's about community. Barriers, we seek to reduce them. Those that keep people out, those that keep people in borders, we want to have porous borders, but a definite center. Jesus and our core convictions at the heart of who we are and all we do, but beyond that, we want ill-defined edges. We want to be inclusive without compromise. And then finally, balance. We want to emphasize the importance of church gathered and church scattered. And so we come together to be refreshed. We come together to worship. We come together to be refueled. And then we walk out those doors. We scatter to continue to be church and to continue to worship through our lives and our discipleship. We must strike the balance between church gathered, church scattered. Question is, how do we become a church without walls, a church like this? Will we then believe Windsor Baptist must intentionally become and increasingly become a place of belonging, of multiplying, of serving, and of going. So two weeks ago, we looked at belonging, this idea that we want to be a family, we want to be a community, we want this to be a place where people find acceptance and where true fellowship becomes an actual reality. And then last week, we thought about multiplying, about being a church that is growing not just biologically growing, not just growing through transfer growth, all of those are great, but growing by conversion as people discover new life in Christ. And so we reflected on our heart for people. Do we love people enough to share the gospel with them? And we also thought about our commitment to evangelism, to sharing the good news of Jesus in word and deed with our neighbors, our friends, our families, our colleagues, our, the strangers, even our enemies. Today, we come to this third intention, this third strand of our vision, that we want to be a place of serving. Now, one of the, uh, one of the amazing things about this church is the sheer number of people who serve, who roll up their sleeves on a regular basis, and they give of their time, and they give of their energy, and they give of themselves. Even this morning, well over 50 dedicated and committed servants have served us. Praise team, PA guys, audiovisual guys, the deacons, the elder and Judy, 
those who helped collect the offering, Katie who will count the offering, maintain our finances, the junior church team next door, the creche team up on number 14, those who were here early, sitting over here on my left, who were here early to prepare coffee and tea to serve you after the service, who will stay when you've all gone to clear up, the person who provided the flowers, okay? Just this team of committed, dedicated servants. And if we looked at the rest of the week at Windsor and all the various activities that take place, it's incredible and so encouraged to discover that this place is populated by people who are prepared to live beyond themselves, not just for themselves, but beyond themselves, who willingly serve others as this kind of tangible expression of their faith and their love for God and love for neighbors. So on Wednesday night, many from Windsor helped serve something like 300 international students. Now, Matt doesn't look particularly happy about doing it. But anyway, forget that, okay? Richard looks a lot happier, but, but anyway, we'll move on very quickly. But thank you to all those who prepared sweets. Gordon put out a call last week. We needed 40 desserts. I don't know exactly know how many he got, but we were able to feed nearly 300 international students. So thank you, church, for being a church who serves. And the importance and the value of serving others and being a servant is a constant and inescapable theme in the teaching of Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to give you three critical reasons to serve and why serving is so important for us and part of our vision. Now, we have looked at this before. So this is a bit of recall. So why serve? Three critical reasons to serve. To embrace an example, to experience divine blessing, and to discover true greatness. If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to John chapter 13? One of the most striking incidents that captures the heart of Jesus for those who've chosen to follow him takes place on the eve of his crucifixion and death. And this moment, this significant, poignant moment is recorded in John 13. And Jesus is approaching the end of his all too short life. And he knows it. And within a matter of hours, he's going to be leaving. And so in an upstairs room, Jesus shares a final meal with some of his closest friends. And they're all there. But then something very strange happens. Let's join the story in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal... He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, just pause there for a moment. We all know in that specific culture and context, whenever people arrived to eat together, they needed to wash their feet before they reclined at this low-set table. Pre-meal foot washing was, was an important custom. It was also a token of hospitality. But even beyond that, there was a very practical hygienic dimension to bear in mind. And the problem on this particular occasion is glaring. It's staring everyone in the face. No one has turned up to wash feet. There's no slave. There's no servant in place to carry out this routine task. The water's there, obviously. The basin is there. The towel's there. But no one has showed up to serve. And as you read between the lines in John 13, the disciples kind of all arrive and they file in. And and as each one of them enters the room, it's about decision time for them. Everything yes is in place except they're bound to have noticed 
Where's the foot washer? So what do they do? Do they each wash their own feet? Or, even more radical, will one of the disciples step into the foot washer's shoes or sandals and clean everyone else's feet? Well, neither happens. No one, it seems, is up for the job. No one is willing to become a slave or a servant. It's kind of beneath them, and so they head for the table despite the state of their feet. And I've always wondered, did anyone raise the issue? I wonder as they reclined at that, did anyone mention what everyone knew? Jesus has also arrived. And according to verse 2, which we didn't read, they start eating. And then Jesus rises from the table. And he does something extraordinary or phenomenally simple and straightforward depending on your perspective. And the tension in the room must have been tangible. The disciples watch as Jesus rises, takes off his outer clothing, wraps the towel around his waist, pours water into the basin, and gets down on his knees and starts washing each of the disciples' feet lovingly, individually. And this must have been uncomfortable, even embarrassing. Not the foot washing bit. I mean, these guys were used with people washing their feet. We're not. They were, so they wouldn't have found that uncomfortable. They wouldn't have found the fact that they're having their feet washed embarrassing. The unsettling issue here is the fact that it's Jesus, their master, who's on his knees performing this chore. And there's no doubt, there's probably a sense in which they just wish the ground would open up and swallow them. Andrew Kostenberger, commenting on this, writes, every act of Jesus described here in excruciating detail would have been like a dagger in the disciples' hearts, convicting them of their pride and their refusal to lower themselves to the role of of a servant. And one of the disciples we read can't sit silently while this happens. Which disciple can't sit silently? Peter, of course. Peter can't handle this. And Peter speaks... But after a brief conversation with Peter, Jesus finishes the job and then says this. End of verse 12. Do you understand what I have done for you, says Jesus? You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And then Jesus says something that should be etched into the heart and mind of every Christian. Everyone who claims to be a self-denying, cross-carrying Jesus follower should have what Jesus says next here etched into their hearts and minds. I have set you an example 
that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus calls every one of his followers to reflect his example and serve others. Why? Because he wants that to be a distinctive characteristic of all those who bear his name. Jesus doesn't command us to literally wash people's feet, but he does stress the need to adopt the attitude of a servant. And this somewhat shocking incident in John forever stands as a visual demonstration to live beyond ourselves, to look beyond our own concerns, social status, titles and positions, to look beyond my wants and my desires and my needs and my rights and instead actually roll up our sleeves, get down on our knees and serve one another in tangible, practical and at times very, very simple ways but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard, because things get in the way. Reasons derail our good intentions, any number of them. But I reckon one of the most pressing and popular reasons is that there's just so much going on in my world. So much to contend with, so much to deal with in my own life, in my family's life, that the prospect, the challenge of doing something for someone else, of having to turn around and serve someone else, is surely a bridge or a step too far. And I've confessed this before, and I'll confess it again, it's exactly where I spend most of my time, in that place. I've got too much going on in my own world. It's too much going on in my own family. I don't have time to live beyond that and serve others. And yet, whenever I reflect a little further on what was actually going on in Jesus' world, as he washed feet, I found myself humbled and challenged because, you see, Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed by a close friend. But not only that, Jesus was about to suffer intense physical, emotional, spiritual pain. The hour had come. The prospect of torture, abandonment, and death were at the forefront of his mind in less than 24 hours. Jesus knew exactly what lay ahead of him. And yet, in the midst of all that was going on in his world, he still chose to serve. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You see, when it comes to serving, I tend to be quite selective. I'll do it if I feel like it. I'll do it if I'm motivated to do it. I'll do it if I'm in a good place. I'm having a good day. I'll do it if I might think I'll receive a little bit of attention or gratitude or thanks. And yet a true servant, it seems, rarely gets any credit. They simply serve and make themselves available. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage us as a church to serve. Why? To embrace the example of the one that many of us in this church claim to follow. Secondly, serve to experience divine blessing. People who serve often talk about the fact that they get more out of it than they put into it. But you know something that actually goes deeper than that, it goes beyond that. Look at verse 17. Now you know these things, says Jesus, 
you will be blessed if you do them. You see, as with so much of Christian discipleship, proof of or evidence for authenticity, it's not seen in all you know. Proof and evidence for authenticity in Christian's life is seen in what you do. It's in the doing. Now, says Jesus, that we know these things. Now you know the importance of serving. You will be blessed when you do them. See, it's got to move from head to heart to hands. Head to heart to hands. But what an amazing thought and incentive that towel bearers, foot washers, junior church teachers, PA operators, crash helpers, people who serve others who do become recipients of God's blessing and divine favor. And so for all those 50 plus people who have served us this morning, you are recipients of God's divine blessing. So embrace an example, serve to experience divine blessing, and thirdly, to discover true greatness. Last one. So much of the teaching of Jesus is profoundly countercultural. In fact, at face value, so much of Jesus' teaching just doesn't make sense. It jars with us. It creates confusion for many. We live in a world where greatness is often defined by power. So in other words, the one who is served is far greater than the one who serves. That, that's just the mindset of the world in which we live in. The one who served is far greater than the one who serves. That's natural logic as opposed to kingdom logic. Please now turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to read another incident. Comes a bit before the upper room episode. But again, Jesus is challenging his listeners about the importance of serving. There's lots going on around this particular incident. Jesus has, for about the third time, predicted his own death. And he's disclosed some disturbing information about what lies ahead of him in Jerusalem. If you look at verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, I'm going to be condemned, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be killed, but in three days I'm, I'm going to rise again. But how the disciples react every single time to these significant predictions is awful. It's absolutely awful how they react. And here is no exception. Look at verse 35. James and John, sons of thunder. They come to Jesus with a demand, and if this wasn't so tragic, it would be amusing. Teacher, they say to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. A more self-centered, self-serving sentence would be hard to find. Before I become a bit too kind of past remarkable or harsh, I wonder if I ever pray along similar lines. God, here's what I want you to do for me. Anyway, Jesus in, in kind of gracious fashion asks, well, what do you want me to do for you? It's a question Jesus asks a number of different people. Blind Bartimaeus, he asked a similar question. What, what do you want me to do for you, James and John? Here's their response, verse 37. Let one of us sit on your right 
and the other on your left in your glory. James and John call shotgun. They want the best seats. Jesus, we want seats of glory. We want seats of power. We want seats of authority. We want seats of recognition. We want seats of status in your coming kingdom. A chapter earlier, chapter nine, after Jesus had predicted his death for a second time, the disciples had then a full-blown argument about who was the greatest. And Jesus had to sit them down and he had to explain that anyone who wants to be first has got to be last. Anyone who wants to be first has got to be the servant of all. But it seems back in Mark 9, they just didn't get it because here they are in chapter 10. It's only a chapter later. Time weighs no idea how long it is later, but probably not that long later. But here they are again, vying and jockeying for positions of power. And so no wonder Jesus turns around and says, do you know something, guys? You do not know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking. If you jump down to verse 41, you discover, as always, Jesus rarely has private conversations. Other people are always eavesdropping. And so the other 10 disciples get wind anyway of what James and John had said, and they hit the roof. And it says in here, they became indignant with James and John. They are so angry at James and John. Not so much for asking the question, but for asking that particular question. Hang on a minute, you've called shotgun? And so Jesus, again, they're having a row amongst themselves. Jesus has to step in and speak into their lives. And he starts by referring to Gentile secular rulers. They lorded over the people, he says. And he talks about how great ones in that environment exercise authority over people. But he says, listen, you should be different, radically different. That if they honestly want to be great and to know what that means in kingdom terms in God's eyes, then listen carefully, says Jesus. Verse 43. Hear this, please, church, hear this. Not so with you, says Jesus. In other words, there's a different way for you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You see, Jesus deconstructs, reconstructs reality. True greatness, says Jesus, comes via service. Doesn't come from privileged position, status, and power. It comes from being a servant and a slave. And it seems that Jesus needed to constantly reinforce this teaching and remind his followers about this critical aspect of discipleship time and time again. The original disciples didn't get it. I don't get it. Keep losing sight of it. And therefore, as a church, we want this to be written large into our vision that we want to be an intentional place of serving so that we don't forget this, so that we don't lose sight of it, so that we don't become all about us, me. We want to be a church without walls where we create opportunities for service within the walls as we serve one another, as 50 plus people serve us this morning, but we also want to create opportunities to serve beyond these walls in our community. I started earlier by looking at the example of Jesus in John 13. Let me finish with the final verse of John 10. Well-known verse. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the ultimate servant who lived and died to serve others. He modeled this servant life. But one of the realities of this verse clarifies something that's really important to bear in mind. And what this verse at the very end of Mark 10 clarifies for us is the costliness of service. Serving others will cost you. It it really will. It cost Jesus his life. It will cost us time. It will cost us energy. It will be tough at times to get here for whatever time the guys at the back got here in order to set this all up. Not have a lie in all those. It will cost to serve others. But those who claim to live in God must walk as Christ walked. And so today, as we think about our vision, as we celebrate and say thanks to those who have served us up to this point and beyond, let me encourage you with not only these three reasons to serve, but you know something as I was thinking about this, these are also three benefits of serving. Three benefits of serving, because if you serve like this, you get to embrace an example, you get to experience divine blessing, and you get to discover true greatness.